Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the podcast segment of our show that is not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for today on this 462nd show is Dr. Sophia White, professor of American Studies at the University of Notre Dame, who will be talking to to us about her book, Voices of the Enslaved, Love, Labor, and Longing of French Louisiana. Our history buffs, Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. Ed, why don't you start us off? Thanks, John. Sophie, I recently read a book entitled Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man by a fellow named Emmanuel Acho. And he talked about how black children are frequently given very unique names. Um, in contemporary America, and he wrote that this dates back to the time of slavery, where children were given very unique names because if the family got split up, it would be a way to identify if you heard something through the grapevine uh, in the absence of surnames that you knew who was being talked about specifically. Can you comment on that, or did you find that? Uh, the, the question of naming is such a complex one. Um, in a place like Louisiana, where the, the population is smaller and it's, um, it, it probably doesn't present the same challenges um, in the period I study. Um, but, and the next question is that we have parallel naming structures sometimes. So that if you have someone who's come over from West Africa or, you know, and then has a child, they have their own names, but the enslavers will usually give them, will replace that name uh, with a French one or with these sort of occasional mythological names, you know, um, that come up. Democritus is one, uh, Caesar, etc. cetera. Uh, they have patterns of giving names, but whether they use them or not is another question. So for me, the naming is, um, and that's part of the, the, the process of stripping someone's identity in the way that you would strip them of their clothes and redress them. It's also in Louisiana where uh, the slave code requires masters to instruct, have their uh, slaves instructed in the Catholic faith uh, and hopefully have them uh, baptized. You also have the naming issue there. What comes up with names is seeing simultaneous uses. So someone might have uh, been known as Caesar or John um, but they are known by, they're still known by the name they might have arrived in. And there's uh, one example that I talk about uh, in the book. Um, he's known as Francois, which is Francis, but in fact, it's Francois known as Baraka, and Baraka is a Muslim honorific. So we know from that that he's still, perhaps it's not his Muslim name, but it gives a sense that he is still identifying and is identified by others in that community as Muslim. Um, so the the archives really are terrifically rich for that purpose, and um, but possibly in in a different way than um, than Emmanuel Acho's um, findings, um, possibly just because of the nature of, of what's going on in 18th century Louisiana. Terry, yes, um, I'd like to piggyback on that. Did many of the enslaved people's testimonies refer to their homeland uh, during the court proceedings? No, they they have to in the sense that they are asked um, when they come to court, they have to identify every person has to identify themselves and and give, you know, where they live, but also their nation. 
in the case of, of Africans. And of course, so they might say they are Bambaha or Fon um, or Congo. And we have to, to um, be a little bit careful with those because it just might mean this is where the ship left. And it doesn't necessarily tell us much about where they came within the sort of interiors. Um, but in some cases it does. So that is usually the only reference, direct reference you can find in which they will identify themselves. And occasionally they'll talk about, you know, there's one who says, um, I'm not a friend of the Bambaha, you know, or I'm not a friend of, of this. And you, you get a sense of animosities that are continuing. Those are references. Now, uh, direct references. More importantly, in the archives, there is a lot of scope for um, finding evidence of the continuing uh, continuation of pre-existing um, cultural, social, religious practices. Um, in some cases, um, the sort of um, all-male sort of protection societies in one of my chapters, uh, chapter four, the sense of there is a, the constitution of, a, of an all-male society that's, that's helping to... Um, protect and regulate within the plantation and you get strong elements of that um, in this chapter I, I mentioned in the main uh, element about this love story that goes on for 14 years when this couple who belong to different owners finally find a way to live together as runaways well she's a runaway he's not they reconstitute household practices that are um, almost directly taken from from West African ones so those are the ways we can find um, continuations. And I will say there's one element, which is even in the act of speaking, oral storytelling, um, narrating, um, even um, criminal proceedings in West Africa are oral. So there is that aspect as well that can, um, we can find elements of that in the testimony if we, if we care to look for it. Tricks to tales being told as part of, of testimony. Mm. Um, those types of things. Once you start looking, you you can usually find it. Okay. Um, when how was the access of getting this um, evidence? I mean, of course, we historians always want to find the topic that um, pretty much uh, no one has researched on because you always want that eureka moment, uh, and that is ninety nine point seven percent of the time incredibly difficult. Um, when you found this topic to write about it, uh, how easy, I, mean, I want to say easy, but was it something that many people overlooked or this was something that you felt, hey, this is a road that's no one's traveled? I, I think it's, it's uh, so yes, we do. So um, I'm afraid I, 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 was, uh, I was slow. <laughs> um, I have been working on these archives for, I've been working on them for over 10 years and um I've written most of my um, areas working on material culture, clothing of the enslaved, because this is the other thing, right? We all communicate through um, objects. <laughs> um, and for non-literate, it's a particularly rich way to, to look for expression. Of course, even the literate use apparel to express themselves. So I had been mining these archives for years, and many others have worked on these archives. But it was that a testimony of this one young man when I was rereading it for something in, in particular. And it and that time, you know, sixth time I read it, I thought, <laughs> business that, you know, he's saying without being asked, not once, not twice, but three times. And then I went and I looked at all of the trials again. 
And I noticed that there were other moments when, oh, she said on her own initiative, oh, she said, you know, without whatever. And then I realized, I went back again, and I realized that the scribe didn't always write down and said without being asked, but it was inferred. And so that was the real, um, that was the, the ground shifting under me in terms of the book. And I went back and looked at all the trials again and realized when, um, when it was very clear when that deposition would go off on tangents. And so that became the, the book, to, to look for those moments, even when they weren't so directly articulated by the scribe, but that you could see it because you see the pattern uh, emerging. Um, so that is, um, you call it Eureka, I call it my aha moment. Uh, it was the first <laughs> aha moment, and I, first aha moment. The second aha moment was once I then spent a year or two or three um, immersing myself in French legal procedure and, you know, become a little French legal scholar on the side, realizing that not only did they speak, go off on tangents, but to understand a, why French law allowed them to go off on tangents, because English laws do not. They do not let them do that. They cut them off. And secondly, to understand that what was said had to be written again because of French law, which meant that my archive was, was, was as good as I could ever get it. Nothing is perfect. There well, are all sorts of problems, but we cannot, we do not have the luxury to ignore these voices. Um, and, uh, <laughs> to bring, bring up a friend of ours, uh, Dr. Sarah Butler at Ohio State University. Now, this is more of a yes. personal question. She says nothing gets her more enjoy, uh, full more enjoyment um, outside of family than walking into an old, musty, damp library <laughs> in England because she writes on legal cases in the Middle Ages. And surrounding herself in this very cold maybe mildew-ridden place to find artifacts that were per pertinent to the time in the research do you have the same weakness <laughs> yes although i must say i'm getting a little bit tired of them well uh mustiness may be hot and humidity <laughs> and i i have branched out i am from a little island in the indian ocean mauritius which was a former french colony and had the same Laws is Louisiana, so I've spent a lot of time in those archives too, just as hot and humid. Yeah, that's different rules. <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like some printed materials, please. Can yeah, I yes. And the librarian looks at you with that, what the hell do you want? And then, you know, you take it from there. Ed, you got a question. <laughs> I do. Um, where are we, um, Sophie? There was a point in the U.S. around um, a point in the U.S. where further importation of slaves was outlawed, and the slave owners' pattern of behavior had to change from just looking at slaves as replaceable chattel property, as opposed to okay, now I can't import any more slaves. I have to start paying re to attention to reproduction because this is the only way I'm going to be able to maintain um, my slave population. Where are we with that in uh, French colonial uh, Louisiana in the time period where you're studying? Yes, yeah, so it, that's a nice parallel you bring up. Obviously, we, we do not have the same um, law because there's, there's no prohibition. So this isn't um, what happens in the, in the 19th century with the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade, etc., but I think you make a fair point in that after 1731, there are no slave shipments. Now, did, did, the, did the colonists sort of necessarily realize that? 
probably not. <laughs> they kept trying to bring in new shipments. But at some point, the penny would have dropped. I mean, from 1731 to 1748, there is no shipment. And then from 1748, you have to wait to the 60s again. Um, and I think um, in this case, it, it probably has to affect um, the, the conditions um, because they are making economic calculations. And obviously, they're trying to bring in more shipments and they're trying to illegally bring in the occasional slaves. But that is a problem. Louisiana has some other, in fact, French, um, French law has some other ways in which they diverge from English law. And I think this is an important one, which is that um, I mentioned that they are required to be instructed in the Catholic faith and hopefully with a view to baptism to Catholicism. And with a population that after 1731, no new influxes, the rate of, of identification as Catholic is very high. I don't want to spend time right now thinking about what that means because it's a complex question. But that also means they also allow enslaved people to get married in the Catholic Church. Legal marriage, which again is not something that is common in the English colonies. The New, New England is probably the only exception. They're allowed to marry and if they marry they have all sorts of benefits. They, a husband and wife cannot sold apart from one another. Also Children cannot be sold away from their mothers under the age of 12. This is a huge difference with the English colonies where you could sell babies off. And so there are, there are ways around it. You could lease, um, you know, you could send them to your plantation, you could do other things, right? But there are some, some legal rights there. And I think that, so in other words, it's hard to untangle what would be better conditions if we wanted to, to call it that. And I, you know, this is with a grain of salt, um, given, you know, the, the endemic violence, et cetera, and the power inequities. But whether those slightly better conditions are because they know they can't get any more uh, arrivals, or whether it is also because the culture is that you do not sell off children under the age of 12. And so you've got different conditions for family formation, family household, who feeds those children who are under 12, who oversees their food, those types of factors playing in that are a lot more about the agency of the enslaved people themselves than it is about uh, slave owners. We would it's like a really complex question. Okay. We would like to thank our guest for the 462nd show, Dr. Sophia White, professor of American studies at the University of Notre Dame, who has talked to us about the voices of the enslaved love labor and the longing in French Louisiana, her new book. The history bus for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. You can listen to ROIs. It's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2, 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALAHD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search and click on the first icon and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple, Podcast, and Google Podcast. ROI is recorded at station KALA St. Ambrose University.